Hey guys, welcome to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. Recently on this podcast, we have focused on how the COVID crisis has essentially provided the perfect cover for a wide variety of agendas, particularly agendas that seek to alter sectors of the economy and society that extend far, far beyond healthcare. As any diligent researcher will tell you, among the best things one can do to understand the how and why of major consequential shifts like these we are currently observing is to simply follow the money, and man, has the money been busy lately. Before the COVID crisis and throughout, central banks and Wall Street institutions have been engaging in activity that is not just hugely consequential, but historic. It's also, to a significant degree, completely criminal. Despite this, their activities have been barely investigated or discussed by either mainstream or independent media over the past two years or so. But now with the current push for central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs, It's quite clear that the bankers during the COVID era have been preparing and planning for the controlled demolition of the current economic system in order to phase in a new economic system that is quickly being constructed behind the scenes. Just in the past month, central banks around the world have published or announced that they will soon publish their white papers on CBDCs, while both global financial institutions like the Bank of International Settlements and major financial companies like Visa have made major strides in building the backbone of cross-border interoperability of an imminent CBDC gold rush. But are CBDCs really just digital cash, as proponents have claimed, or are they really something quite different from what we commonly define as money? Joining the podcast today to talk about these topics and more is John Titus. John is the founder of the Best Evidence YouTube channel, which examines the major financial and legal forces shaping today's dystopia, specifically in the United States. And he is also a frequent contributor to Catherine Austin Fitz's Solari Report. John is a well-known critic of central banks and Wall Street and is one of the most meticulous chroniclers of their misdeeds, as well as one of the few to really take a detailed look at what the bankers have been up to in the lead up to and during the course of the COVID era. We will be focusing not just on John's work on those topics, but also on what the bankers plan for the post-COVID era from central bank digital currencies to climate change and carbon markets. Welcome to Unlimited Hangout, John. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Whitney. It's my first time. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. So before we get too deep, I think it may be helpful to some people in my audience to briefly explain what the Federal Reserve is and is not and why it's pretty much impossible to separate it from Wall Street. Um, While I think some people in my audience probably already know this, I know that there are still a lot of people who tend to operate under the misconception that the Federal Reserve is an expressly public sector entity while Wall Street is private. So what's the truth here and why does it matter? Well, let me let me back up to to a, a bit of my background because my first time and you say you know I'm well known I'm not well known at all. Um, I mean I have a small I'm a YouTube hobo. I have you know thirty thousand subscribers. You know it's very tiny. Um, so my background is in federal litigation generally. I'm a lawyer and in patent litigation in particular. And that's where I cut my teeth, and it's very detail-oriented. And I got into sort of, you know, this is called alternative news space. During the financial crisis, when I saw that the reporting on what was going on in the financial markets bore scarcely any relationship to reality on the ground. The reality on the ground was a lot of fraud was going on, and no one was really talking about that. And so eventually... That financial crisis, 0809, morphed into a foreclosure and eviction crisis where banks and big companies are they're perpetrating fraud on the courts 
to to steal people's houses, basically disown them of their homes. And I, I walked away from the legal profession for a while to make a film called Bailout, um, which I, I wrote it and produced it, but I didn't direct it because I didn't know how to turn a camera on. Um, and the film went nowhere because it told the truth. And that was sort of my introduction to because there's a lot more work. The media is not what you might think. Um, it's essentially a propaganda arm of the banks. That was abundantly clear throughout the production of Bailout. But eventually what happens, the crisis morphs, as I say, into a foreclosure and eviction crisis. And then it reaches up the, sort of like a cancer into the Department of Justice, which is absolutely during Obama's first term, not prosecuting any major Wall Street banks. And in early 2013, PBS frontline Martin Smith comes out with an episode called The Untouchables, where he absolutely rips the mask off the DOJ. And we learn that the Department of Justice is not even investigating Wall Street. And that's a shocking thing. I mean, that means they're above the law. They can do whatever they want. They have more power than the president. They have more power than anyone in the federal government. Um, so that's, that's kind of my background. To your question of what's going on with the Fed, is it public, is it private? It's pitched as a public entity. And certainly the Board of Governors of the Fed, there's three arms of the Federal Reserve. There's a Board of Governors. There's, um, that's one. The second is the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee. That's the policy setting arm of the Fed. Uh, the, but the FOMC is really a, a, a hybrid of the B, of the Board of Governors and the third arm, which is the private, privately owned regional Federal Reserve Bank. So if you if you break out, you know, a ten dollar, twenty dollar bill, whatever, you'll see a letter on in the middle of a in the middle of the bill, A through K, um, or L actually. There's twelve regional Federal Reserve. So there's Bank of New York, Bank of Chicago, Bank of Richmond, Atlanta, so on and so forth. And those twelve regional Federal Reserve banks are all privately owned. Um, and the, and the, in fact, the U.S. government has no shares in the regional Federal Reserves. And the region, you say, well, why does that matter? What's the deal with the regional Federal Reserves? Well, the, the reason I meant, mentioned the cash is that the regional Federal Reserves, those 12 banks print the money. So they print the money in two forms. They print it physically, like cash. They have the, actually they have the Bureau of Engraving and Printing do it. So the regional feds print cash, but they also print um, in greater volume digital money called reserves. So that's that's the two forms of money that's issued by the Fed. And the reason that relates to your question is that tells you right there, those 12 regional federal reserves, they're all private. And we know they're private because, you know, the Bank of New York has admitted as much um, repeatedly. It's really undisputed that those regional federal reserves are private. And really the role of the Board of Governors and everything else is to give um, the false appearance that the Fed is public. It is not public. Uh, the, the money, the, the amount of money issued by the Board of Governors is zero. The amount of money issued by the FOMC is zero. The amount of money issued by the regional federal reserves is now over $8 trillion. So you tell me who's running the Fed. I'll tell you, it's the entities that are issuing the money, and they are most certainly private. And we don't know who they are. 
I mean, they'll tell you, yeah, they're owned by the they're they're owned by the the, the banks, the commercial banks in that region. But you know, good luck finding out who owns them. Um, and it's beyond dispute that the that the U.S. government owns none of the regional Federal Reserves. Um, so that they're, they're, the Fed is completely a private energy, uh, a private entity, and everything else trying to convince you, oh, it's public, you know, it's just that they're an agent of the Treasury and all the rest. That's a shuck and jive. That's a bunch of nonsense. The regional Federal Reserves are private, and they print all the money. Period. Full stop. Great. So I think that was a really uh, helpful summary for people that aren't quite familiar with that, because I think it's uh, I, I think especially after 2008, uh, it's it's hard to find a person, not just in the United States, but really anywhere uh, that likes the bankers <laughs> or has sympathy from them. Um, so, you know, it, it makes it easier to frame some of this um, stuff that the that the Federal Reserve has also been up to lately that I know that you have uh, really, I think, been the only person uh, really covering um what you term uh, the going direct reset. Uh, but a lot of that, of course, has to do with um, what the Wall Street behemoth BlackRock uh, was doing in relation to Federal Reserve policy uh, before COVID-19 even hit and how that ended up informing um, the Fed's COVID policy because some people may be uh, aware uh, that essentially BlackRock was put in charge of a lot of uh, so-called pandemic relief funds Um in the early earlier half of uh, last year, um, but I think most people, uh, and if it wasn't um, for your work, I think uh, no one would really be aware, to be honest, um, that BlackRock's involvement in this process predated that particular event uh, by several months, um, going back to 2019. So, would you mind uh, expanding on that a little bit? Yeah, um, but let me give you a little bit of background so that. You sure. need some background to understand what happened. So I said the Fed issues money. And certainly um, we're all familiar with cash. Um, we know about that. But reserves, that's electronic money. And the normal person, you know, we don't have access to reserves. This is, it's a special form of money. So let's leave out for the second cash because it's physical. We want to talk about digital money because that's where things are going. That's what CBDCs are. Everybody knows that. So let's focus on electronic money. Electronic money. We have electronic money, too, in our system. Um, you do. I do. Pretty much everybody does in the form of bank money. And, you know, so if you have an account at a bank, you, know, you use your, your you know, ATM machine to get cash. You bank electronically. You pay your bills online, so on and so forth. That's all electronic money. In the U.S. and in Western jurisdictions generally, really with precious few exceptions across the world, money is issued as in the form of debt. Okay, and you got to understand that. That's essential to understand that when a bank, when you go to a bank and you get a thousand dollar loan, um, the bank creates that money out of thin air uh, as an IOU to you. So let's say you get a thousand dollar loan, you go into the bank. You sign the loan paper. You get your your account is credited with a thousand dollars. That thousand dollars is I O. That's an I O U from the bank to you. That's on the liability side of the bank's balance sheet. The asset side of the bank's balance sheet now has an asset called a note from Whitney to the bank. Okay, so everything balances out. But the key thing is that's an I O U. It's a liability to the bank. 
And that's important because if you take that money, you take your thousand dollars and you say you want to pay me and I'm at a different bank, you, know, you want to transfer that thousand dollars to me, my bank is not going to take that money because it's an IOU. I mean, are you going to accept your neighbor's IOU as your own? No, you're not going to take that on. You're going to demand something to balance that out. And banks do the same thing. They take each other's liabilities on. Um, so that, you know, my bank would take on your thousand dollars, you know, from your account into my account. My bank would accept that as a liability of its own because my bank knows that it's not just the thousand dollar liability that's being transferred from you to me, that behind the scenes, your bank, Whitney's bank, is transferring a thousand dollars in reserves to my bank. And the reserves are the electronic money that counterbalances the bank money. It counterbalances the IOU from banks to customers. So what are reserves? Reserves are really, from a bank's point of view, they're an IOME, right? So who's the I and the IOME of reserves? The, the issuer of IOUs, or really IOMEs, the reserves, the issuer of reserves is the Federal Reserve. And the purpose of reserves, the purpose of that electronic money is to function as an electronic asset to counterbalance the electronic liabilities in the form of bank money. So every system in the West, really every system in the world, has a two-tier electronic money system in which a central bank issues the electronic assets and in which the commercial banks issue the electronic liabilities, the IOUs, from the banks to you or the bank from the banks to me. And that's essential to know. You have to know that because for a long time, um, the banks simply didn't need that many reserves. You know, if you imagine transfers from, say, Bank of America to J.P. Morgan Chase, I mean, how many, you know, tens of thousands or millions of transfers are done from Bank of America customers to Chase customers? It's a lot. So at the end of the day, those those two banks have to settle each, with each other because they're holding each other's IOUs. And there's a question of how much money does Bank of how much money does B of A owe Chase or vice versa? And let's say it's a million dollars you know, the Bank of America owes Chase, that those transactions are settled in reserves. That's that's how the books are for everybody is balanced out. And for a long time, that's all reserves did in our system. The Fed, the, the vast majority of money issued by the Fed was cash. And it might have issued something like for the trillions upon trillions and trillions of dollars of transactions, the Fed might have issued, you know, 20 or 30 billion in reserves. And that was that. Um, if you just need a reserves to settle the commercial bank transactions at the retail level, that changed a little bit in 08. Um, when the banks, the commercial banks got into trouble, everybody knows they had to be bailed out. Um, there was certainly the TARP bailout in the form of $700 billion, but the real bailout came from the Fed. And then the Fed changed reserves from not just settling transactions, it was also using reserves to prop up commercial banks. It would simply say, let's let's take Citigroup. That's a good example. The most bankrupt of the bankrupt banks. To bail out Citigroup, the Fed would say, issue a billion dollars in reserves to Citigroup in exchange for you know, a, a worthless paper asset. And that's what propped up the banks in 2008. It was the, it was the transmission of reserves at a major level two commercial banks. And if you look at the graph of the Fed's reserves over that time, you can see a, a huge explosion where they go from 20 or 30 billion 
to you know one trillion, two trillion, and on up from there. And that's what happened in 08 and 09 was reserves were being used as an asset to bail out commercial banks. Okay. Now, a lot of people, including myself, uh, erroneously thought that that was going to create inflation, but it doesn't because we don't bank in reserve. You don't have an account at the Fed. I don't have an account at the Fed. You know, giving me reserves isn't going to do me any good. It's like Chuck E. Cheese tokens. To me, I, I can't use them. I don't bank at the Fed. You know, I bank at a regular bank. I, ba I, I transact business in bank money, not reserves. Okay. So that money in 2008, 2009, those reserves, you know, they, the reserves don't leak out into the retail system. They're separate. They're opposite polarity dollars. Um, they're, you know, like I say, they're IOMEs and not IOUs. And so there was no inflation um, back then. And in a lot of ways, uh, that changed in a major way during the pandemic, where suddenly you had the Fed issuing reserves. They created $3.5 trillion in reserves in the space of, few week, of a few weeks. But this time, um, you saw the parallel increase in bank money. So back in 2008, 2009, when the Fed added, I'm just going to throw out a number. They used, Let's say they added $2 trillion of reserves to the system in 08 and 09. That had no effect on the retail money supply. The retail money supply just kept doing its thing, kind of going up in a straight line. Despite the fact that the Fed issued trillions of dollars in reserves in 08 and 09, didn't have any effect on the retail money supply. But that changed big time in 2020. And when the Fed created reserves this time in 2020 to bail out the banks or to do whatever they were doing, you saw the retail money supply also tick up $3.5 trillion. It was a dollar for dollar lockstep response of the retail money supply, the bank money, to the wholesale money supply, the reserves. And that was a radical departure. And that's what no one's talking about. No one but me. I talk about this because I know how they're doing it. You know, I, I've, I've had videos that discuss. You know, how does how does the Fed pull that trick off? Um, and the answer is they basically it's a three party transaction. Um, this time, instead of transferring the reserves to Citigroup, Citigroup's not the only party involved. Let's say that there would be another party involved. Let's say a hedge fund or a retirement account. Let's use CalPERS. This time, the Fed would transfer. Uh, they'd still transfer a billion dollars to Citigroup, but the difference is Citigroup wouldn't transfer the corresponding asset back to the Fed, CalPERS would. And so why is this important? This is important because CalPERS, those assets are things like treasuries and say mortgage-backed securities. They're dogs, they're not returning. They don't have any sort of rate of return on them. CalPERS wants to dump them because they've got retirees, you know, drawing money out of the system. You know, CalPERS needs a higher return for its money than what it's getting on a treasury. So how's it work? CalPERS wants to dump, dump its treasury. But CalPERS knows full well it's not going to get a good price in that treasury. So in 2020, what happens is CalPERS dumps the treasury, but they, they sell it to the Fed. And the way this works is the Fed doesn't give CalPERS the reserves because CalPERS is like us. Those reserves aren't going to do CalPERS a bit of good. So what the Fed says to CalPERS is, hey, you know, give us the treasury and you bank at Citigroup, CalPERS. We'll transfer the billion dollars in reserves to Citigroup. And now they've got an imbalance on their balance sheet. 
they're up a billion dollars in reserves on the asset side. They need a corresponding $1 billion liability. And that's where you come in, CalPERS. Citigroup, when they get that $1 billion in reserves, they're going to have to create a billion dollar account in your name, in bank money, as a liability to counterbalance that. And now you, CalPERS, can take that billion dollars in bank money that you just got from Citigroup, and you can go buy Tesla. You can go buy Amazon, whatever you want. You can, you've dumped the treasury. We now have the treasury and you can get into the stock market. You can invest in the high flying SPACs, whatever you want to do. And that's what went on in 2020. And that was the radical departure from what had happened in previous versions of bailouts and during QE and during, you know, 2008, 2009. That hadn't happened. And the whole, so, you know, how does BlackRock fit into this? Interestingly enough, you know, when the Fed was expanding its balance sheet in March of 2020, allegedly in response to the pandemic and to the lockdowns and whatnot, um, the author of that plan that would, as I just described it, the three-party transaction, the getting the public money, the getting the reserves into private hands, getting that money into CalPERS and their investors' hands, that plan was devised and delivered to BlackRock. Um, by BlackRock to the Fed in August of 2019 at Jackson Hole. They had a plan. It was called um, an Unprecedented Policy Response to the Next Downturn or, or some such thing, but they talk about going direct. In that plan, uh, BlackRock's plan says, hey, you know what? You know, Federal Reserve and other central banks, there's going to be another downturn coming up. And when there is, you need to find an, a way, you need to find an unprecedented policy policy response to get the reserves, to get the public money into private hands. And that had never happened before. That's why BlackRock itself called it unprecedented. It was unprecedented. Um, and that's what happened in March, is the Fed was executing BlackRock's plan. And as you said, BlackRock was later involved. Actually, it started getting involved in March, I think, of 2020, in selecting the assets that the Fed was going to you know, use and the Fed was going to buy uh, when it created those new reserves, you know, both the Fed and commercial banks are alike in that they they create um, the Fed creates reserves just like the bank creates bank money out of thin air. Um, and that that was unprecedented. And that's what happened in March of 2020. The Fed was executing a plan devised and delivered by BlackRock in August of 2019. So this whole thing really seems like a continuation of um, these institutions uh, essentially consolidating control by buying up everything, you know, sort of like how the 2008 crash um, uh, was used to um, sort of consolidate control over certain markets and, and buy things uh, for pennies on the dollar of what they would normally cost, you know, with um, uh, the whole COVID-19 crisis and businesses going under and all of that really created, a, in combination with what you've described, sort of just created a I, it seems like a situation where a lot of these um, these entities that already own like <laughs> not everything but close to everything, um, like BlackRock, allowing them to to buy up uh, even more uh, for something beyond even bargain prices. Is is that correct? Yeah, yeah, but there's there's two there's two different things that you're talking about there, and so let me talk about them. One is. Um, the buying up stuff at pennies on the dollar. That's an that's an ancient trend. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in, in in a debt-based monetary system, the advantage you're giving to the financiers is that they can 
you know, when the money is debt based, they can contract the money supply overnight simply by canceling loans. Right. And then that happens again and again. I mean, that happened in the 1800s, happened in 1893, happened in 1907, 1929 for sure. And 2008, you know, banks contract the money supply. If you look at the money supply in 1929, it contracts down to it contracted 30 percent over the course of four years. Um, and that happens all the time. I mean, banks know, hey, let's contract the money supply. It's caused a depression or recession. Uh, we'll do the pump and dump. We'll pump the thing up on the way up and then we'll cancel all loans or reduce the money supply will cause deflation. And then we can buy up businesses and assets at pennies on the dollar. That's an ancient trend. That's a tried and true formula. And yeah, it, that happened here too. The second trend you mentioned um, is consolidation. And that's banks getting bigger and bigger and entities getting bigger and bigger. And that's been going on for a long time too. Um, really got going in the late, in mid to late 90s. Uh, particularly under the Clinton administration, really loosened a lot of rules. Um, and you saw a lot of bank mergers until to the point where you get, you know, four banks, the four biggest banks in the U.S. being Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo. Those four banks control something like 40% of the retail money supply. So now they got a gun to your head, okay? The money supply contracted 30% over four years in the Depression. Now you're at a point by 08, 09, where those four banks can do a lot more damage than you had in a depression overnight. So they got a gun to your head. Net consolidation has been going on for a long time. But it's really, it, it, there's another problem with the consolidation in that as banks get bigger, they lend less. You know, if you look at the at trends and you look at graphs from provided by the Federal Reserve itself, you'll see that the ratio of loans coming from biggest banks to the smallest banks, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. You would think it would be otherwise, but big banks are horrible lenders. And in a lot of ways, what's happening is that the Fed is having to step into the breach because it's created these Frankensteins that aren't lending. And if they're not lending, your money supply is contracting. So the Fed's, you know, in a lot of ways, been a rock and a hard place, but it does continue those old age old trends of, hey, there's nothing like a great crisis, contract the money supply, Go and buy assets. And it's doubly so in this crisis because it's happening against the backdrop of lockdowns where ordinary businesses are being destroyed. And it's allowing, you know, groups like Amazon and other big businesses, chain restaurants to, to go bigger and, and prop them up. Well, I think consolidation is so important here because this is also taking place under the backdrop of what are clearly preparations uh, for a new economic system, um, of which, um, you know, central bank digital currencies are a part, but there's also this move by groups like uh, the World Economic Forum to what they call stakeholder capitalism. Uh, there's also a push from groups like the Vatican-led uh, Council for Inclusive Capitalism uh, to create a new economic system, allegedly based on, quote-unquote, social justice. Um, <laughs> that is essentially the same thing as stakeholder capitalism. Um, this move to a digital economy, digital IDs, all of this stuff is going on at the same time. So I think um, at least what it, it seems like to me is that there's been a really extreme acceleration um, of the of these things that you just talked about, um, because that's essentially a, a prerequisite to allow these entities to phase in this uh, this new paradigm, I guess you could say, economic paradigm economic system, the Great Reset, whatever, whatever word you want to call it, 
the Great Transformation, as the Rockefeller Foundation calls it. There's lots of names for it, um, but it seems like uh, getting closer and closer to complete, you know, uh, uh, consolidation is is really necessary in order to usher in, you know, what is uh, essentially uh, more often than not reduced down to the World Economics Forum uh, forums phrasing of "you will own nothing and be happy." Uh, by 2030, because that, of course, means that these people who currently own so much and after the last year and a half own uh, more now than ever uh, will own it and you will not, more or less. Yeah, um, there's a lot going on there. So the first thing to remember is that these people you're talking about, they're, they're not really after money. Um, right. I tend to agree with that. <laughs> they, 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 they can print money out of thin air. Commercial banks print retail money. The Federal Reserve prints reserves. The Federal Reserve prints cash. Um, the, the money's not their problem. What they're after is control, and that's where they're headed. Um, and that's certainly true with central bank digital currencies, where I think the, the clearest statement on what CBDC, central bank digital currency, are all about comes from Augustin Karstens, who's the general manager of the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland. The BIS, the BIS is the central bank of central banks, sort of the policy setting um, bank that kind of rules the roost over all central banks. And Carson's came out in August of 2020, uh, sorry, October, about a year ago. And he said, boy, he says the problem with a $100 bill or a thousand peso note, he says the problem with a $100 bill is you don't know, you don't know who has that. You know, we don't know who has a bill. We don't know what they're spending it on. He says, but CBDC, oh man, he says, CBDC, we're going to have complete control over that expression of central bank liability, meaning complete control of that money. And we can have, we can have the rules and regulations to enforce that control. We have the technology to control all this money. I mean, it's the closest thing I've seen to like, you know, the insane James Bond dictator going off. And that was August and Carson's a year ago. Basically saying, yeah, well, we want to use this money for complete control of the system. So, for example, if you want to go out and you know buy a pizza, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, you're not allowed to do that because your social credit score isn't high enough. So, it, they they try to pitch this. The central bankers and the people pushing this are trying to pitch central bank digital currency as digital cash. It ain't digital cash. Okay, I've never had a twenty dollar bill just you know spontaneously combust or vanish for my hands, right? But that's what they're talking about. It's money for one purpose, but not for another. That's not money at all. That's a store credit. That's discretionary store credit, not money. And that's a control system. Yeah, I've heard, I the, the way I sort of view it, uh, maybe the, maybe you disagree, I don't know, is sort of that it's, it's sort of a way, uh, in a sense, to go back to, you know, uh, getting money you can only spend at the company store, sort of in the yeah. uh in industrial you know revolution uh era which is interesting because that type of um system was very common you know with uh standard oil the rockefeller monopoly right and it's it's interesting to see um some of those same entities including the rockefeller foundation itself being involved in some of these um in, in these different related projects to that. Um, it, it's just, um, really astounding, honestly. And it's, uh, it seems like a lot of people are sleepwalking into this because 
um, of what you noted that there's there's this sales pitch going around that this is just digital cash or that it's like a quote unquote stable coin. Um, and this is the answer to the volatility um, uh, of cryptocurrency and also the use of uh, cryptocurrency because of its uh, privacy uh, favoring tendencies to allow cyber criminality, ransomware attacks, um, and all of that. And that's essentially been, um, <clears throat> at least from what I've seen, uh, one of the main sales pitches behind this whole uh, CBDC push. But as you noted, it's um, there's there's a lot more uh, to it. So I don't know how closely you followed specifically. Uh, the launch of the digital uh, yuan, uh, which I believe was relatively recent, but you know they, in that case, they have. Um, uh, I think put, they're still prototyping that. Are, okay, so it's a pilot then, but it, it, essentially yeah, it was, so. um, you know, taught that the, them, um, China's central bank discussing uh, placing expiration dates um, <laughs> on the money essentially taking away your ability to decide if you spend or save the money you earn whenever you want. It's a decision that's essentially taken out of your hands and how many uh, similar decisions that people commonly make with what they presume <laughs> to be their money um, will evaporate in the CBDC era. Yeah, boy, there's a lot there. The expiration date, I wouldn't freak out about that that much but that's that that's not new there's been a lot of proposals over the years um and over the decades to make you know put an expiration date on everybody's money and the reason for that is if, if it expires you got to spend it and so you get a higher velocity of money that that's not to me that's yeah that's bad but it's there's there's way worse things to concentrate on. Well, I think it's indicative of the whole aspect of technological enforcement of these things. So they can just flip a switch and your money disappears if you don't spend it by the expiration date type thing. Yeah, they can if they can flip it for a date, they can flip it for any reason. Right. So let's back up to the Rockefellers and all that, because I, I think one of the things you mentioned people sleepwalking. And I think that there's so much going on that there's a blizzard of information. It's true. And so mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about for just a second, the different roles you see from all these different companies who have their hands in the till at say the World Economic Forum, because there's a lot. There's a lot of different ways that you've got to ask yourself, what's the function of this company? What, what's, it, what's its essential function? There's a few functions that you can sort of keep your eye on. The one is ownership okay so if you own a lot of companies then you can control those companies so that's that's there i'm talking about companies like blackrock uh, vanguard fidelity state street you know the big they they have trillions you know nine trillion dollars in, in blackrock's case assets under management and if you go onto any company's um, you know, website any publicly traded company and you go to their 10k their annual filing and you go to the proxy statement in that 10K and you look for a list of beneficial owners. It's one of the things you're required to file under the Securities and Exchange Commission laws is who, hey, who owns the company? And if you look at all these companies, I don't, I don't care who it is, you'll find pretty much the same thing. The BlackRock owns around eight, maybe seven percent. Vanguard owns, you know, seven or eight, six percent and so on and so forth. So you have a very few companies. BlackRock, you know, State Street and the rest that own, you know, 20, 25 percent of every company. 
So they they have control of those companies. They can flush those publicly traded companies down the toilet if they don't tell the company line. That's one way to control. Another big element of control is cash. And that's a different that's a different kettle of fish, okay? Your biggest cash cows in the US in order are Apple, Google, Amazon, and on down. And they have a lot of cash. Like Apple's Apple is way out in front. They got like $200 billion in cash. Um, and that's another big form of control. That enables, the cash enables you to control banks, right? There's a guy named um, Alfred Owen Crozier, probably wrote the best critique of the Federal Reserve before the Fed was even started, wrote it in 1912. And he walks through a bunch of examples of how cash can control banks. And he's talking about what you're talking about, the Rockefellers and Standard Oil and all that. The cash is very powerful a way to control banks because if you pull your cash out and you pull your money out of a bank and the bank's got a lot of loans outstanding, that bank can be bankrupted, right? And the reason that is, is you say, well, how could a bank be bankrupted? They just told me they print their money out of, they can create loans and create money out of thin air. That's true, but they can't create cash out of thin air. And remember, if that $1,000 you have at your bank, if you go to your bank, you can say, hey, I want $1,000 of cash. Bank can't print that out of thin air. So if you can make the bank nervous with a $1,000 withdrawal, imagine what Standard Oil can do with a $75 billion withdrawal from a bank. You know, you get the idea that the cash is a big element of control. So that's a second kind of group. The third group, I would say, is the information group, the people with the information. That's the Facebooks, the Amazons, uh, Google, a little bit of overlap there because they have cash. Um, they have a, they, they're, they're trucking and they're transacting information. And then you have another group I call the policy group. That's, you know, the IMF, uh, the World Economic Forum, you know, others. They, they, they are really sort of the policy center. The Bank for International Settlements in a lot of ways is in that group. Um, but they're, they're all talking and all in cahoots, as you know, at places like the World Economic Forum. That's not the only place. Uh, Davos, they meet there. Um, they meet all around the world. But what they seem to be interested in is transforming the whole notion of money. You know, we think of money as like, you know, hey, I got a quarter, I could spend it, it's mine, I have possession of it, it's it's not going to go away until I spend it. But they're talking about, yeah, it's a quarter today and it's, you know, it's zero tomorrow. We turn it on and off depending on information in, and informational inputs that we have about you. And that's a complete system of control. And it's no accident that the debt-based monetary system is cracking up. You've got way too much debt for the amount of money in the system. Remember, in a debt-based monetary system, you need new debt to create new money, but you don't need new money to create new debt. And that's so you have that ratchet wrench where debt is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Its ratio to money is getting higher and higher and higher. You can't pay off those debts. That system is coming apart at the seams. So it's no accident that the rush is on to just to convert over to a whole, the 100% control system to control the money before it blows apart. That's my read on it anyway. Yeah, well, it definitely seems like um, some of these um, sort of like, I guess you could call it the traditional economy, the conventional economy in a lot of ways, uh, the debt economy is coming apart um, at the seams. Um, that's been pretty evident. Um, over the past couple of weeks is this whole um, Evergrande saga in, in China's unfolding. Um, and it's worth, you know, some people are, are saying that, you know, in, in five days, the economy will collapse. Some prominent guy 
uh, economist YouTuber guy uh, <laughs> was making that claim. But, you know, um, remembering back to 2008, I mean, I was only 18 <laughs> or so at the time. Uh, but I, I do remember that, you know, from from the Lehman collapse, like the official collapse of Lehman, uh, you know, it was still uh, a while before things totally unraveled. Um, but in terms of the timeline uh, of all of this and what you were saying, that this this effort to have um, this new system uh, ready to go once the old one uh, collapses. Is there um, any sort of, of timeline you see there? Um, and you can speak in broad terms. I know it's kind of speculative, but yeah. people always kind of want to know. <laughs> it's going to take longer than you think. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's going to transition in pieces. And we're, we're seeing that. Um, you know, crypto is, is uh, there's a lot going on with crypto, but I, the, generally the time frame, I want to say one other thing about crypto. I'll come back to it. You asked about timing, though. I, 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 the timing I see in different articles, sort of reading the tea leaves and thinking about the magnitude of this project, I think you're looking at the at least 2024, 2025. It's going to be a while. It's going to, it's going to take a lot. It's a lot of work. Crypto, by the way, it, it's got a reputation, at least Bitcoin, as being, you know, it's all private and. You know, you got all this privacy. That's a bunch of nonsense. You can go out and buy a piece of software, eh, 200 bucks or so, and you can get total transparency into every, you can unwrap un, and have transparency into the entire blockchain. So the notion that, that Bitcoin is, is private is, is ludicrous. But now there are cryptos out there that are private. They're called private coins, but Bitcoin ain't one of them. Right. Well, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, misconceptions about terminology because it is something that is really new. So there are misconceptions that people just assume that like, you know, I mean, <laughs> trying to talk to like, I don't know, some uh, some uh, some people who don't really know, you know, they think Bitcoin and cryptocurrency are synonymous even or that bl uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency are synonymous and all of this stuff. So I think there's a lot of um confusion about about terms that, you know, plays into hands of people um, who like to play off um the ignorance of 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 the public when these new things uh, come out, and of course, you know, as the value of cryptocurrency has really um, exploded in in recent years, obviously public interest has exploded as well. Um, and so, you know, there's been a lot, um, like you were saying, going on in that that space. And now there's this whole um, NFT craze that I personally find a little. Um, <laughs> And nuts. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't want to dunk on it too much, but it sort of reminds me of that <laughs> that story that came out maybe a year or two ago where some some quote unquote artists like tape duct taped a banana to a wall and like sold it for a couple grand and stuff. You know, it's like that, but the virtual version. It kind of <laughs> seems yeah. like like that to me. But I'm sure there are people who will <laughs> who will disagree. Now you read stuff like that, and I'm convinced that stories like that are floating out there. To make something like that's not really smart seem safe. Maybe. In other words, you read something insane, it tends to make you think that something that's less insane is normal and is not. Well, that that's possible. I don't know. But the whole NFT craze, I think, is a little um I don't know. It it, it almost makes me think there's just uh it's it's sort of like um false hype, maybe engineered hype. Because uh, I just can't really see people spending that much money on stuff that they can only occupy in quote unquote virtual worlds uh, beyond people who want to be a part of this broader techno fascist system that's in the early stages of being implemented right now. Um, yeah, well, a lot of a lot of crypto and a lot of you know you know things financial 
they're just pump and dumps, right? I mean, it's just, right. you know, I mean, if you can rip people off in the stock market through front running, right, in the New York Stock Exchange, okay, with co-located servers and all that, that's a regulated industry. It's heavily regulated. People are getting fleeced. They're getting robbed, you know, blind in the stock market, okay? How how bad do you think it's going to be in an unregulated market like like crypto? You know, people are going to get blowtorched in crypto. You talk about playing on the ignorant, playing off their ignorance. Yeah, that's a big part of these spaces. It's just it's a straight up heist. And it's it's just ripping off people who are ignorant. Right. Well, a, a theme in, in, in a lot of um, I might work in, in, in this sphere um, recently anyway, is sort of focused on uh, how uh, there's an effort to totally gut anonymity and privacy on the Internet, but also a financial anonymity and how a lot of these uh, same entities that um, you discussed earlier um, are all part of this very massive public-private par- partnership that's nominally led by the by by the WEF, which you put in what you called the policy group, right? But also the the information group, <laughs> like Facebook and stuff, are, um, are also uh, part of this. And uh, I think um, it's pretty likely that they're, uh, we're already sort of seeing it to some extent, but, you know, it'll go beyond just regulating crypto because uh, I don't think they really want to allow any sort of cryptocurrency that, as you mentioned, that there there, there do exist, the um, ones that do in, in uh, create more privacy or offer more privacy. Uh, <laughs> these guys don't want that. So I, I was wondering what you um, sort of see coming in that in that space over the the, uh, you know, mid medium term or so yeah um yeah that's a good question um when Karsten's the head of the bis general manager of the bis goes has his insane we want total control over the hundred dollar bill he has that mom <laughs> that was in a, a symposium with the imf and one of the participants in that same symposium was jerome powell the chairman of the federal reserve and powell you know, he sees Karsten kind of, you know, playing the madman. And Powell, you know, he he's from he's he's from a white shoe law firm, um, Davis Polk. You know, one of the whitest shoe law firms in New York. He, he's a he's a conservative guy, not politically conservative, but cl- plays it close to the chess conservative. And he he see and he he realizes I I can't you know this is insane. And in that same symposium, Powell says, hey, you know, but there might be a lot of benefits. To, to central bank digital currency, but we we gotta we gotta rein it in here, big boy. I mean, he says we we gotta be concerned about the legalities of it, and one of the legalities we need to be concerned about is is anonymity and people's privacy. And I read that as you know, I don't really think um, Jerome Powell cares one way or the other about your privacy or mine, but I think he cares about sounding like hey, you know, we need to be reasonable, and notably. The concern over privacy would be a way for the Fed in implementing a CBDC to say, you know what we're going to do? Uh, we don't want to we don't want to have all that information ourselves, at least not on the granular level. We'll have the aggregate data, but we don't need the granular data. We're going to pass that off to uh, the mid tier, the intermediary tier of people who will administer the CBDC, sort of like commercial banks are the intermediary in our system. Mm-hmm. Um, the the mid-tier and this the intermediaries would be uh, the people managing the CBDC. Sort of like an exchange. Like, 
Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Sort of like an exchange. Um, that would be your honor up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that way you could sort of say, you know what, you know, we're, we're really worried about your privacy. And so we're, you know, we're not going to look into this because we're the government. Um, and we're going to, we're going to let the people who are in, you know, at the retail level manage that. And that's going to be done by, you know, Google or Amazon or whoever. That's kind of, that's kind of my read of that. So you're not going to see a system for one thing, the operational uh, bandwidth required for the fed to control, you know, 330 million U.S. individual CBDC accounts is it's too high. It's too much. They'll have to they'll have to farm it out to like they did with BlackRock in the in the pandemic. They'll farm it out um, and they'll farm it out to the people I'm talking about. And they'll be they'll be managing. They'll be the ones invading your privacy because God knows they have a head start already, don't they? Right. For sure. Well, I think it's essentially guaranteed that privacy will be part of the sales pitch of this. Oh, yeah. Um, Oh, for sure. mm -hmm. But I don't really, you know, like like you just said, I don't think it's really going to be like that in practice. I mean, um, something like ID 2020, part of this big push for this um, combination of biometric IDs, vaccine passports and, and cashless payments which ties into to CBDCs to uh, some degree. Um, uh, they, a big degree, a major right. degree. <laughs> right. Yeah. They um, promote themselves on ID2020 as, you know, promoting privacy, securing your data. Only you will have access to your data and you will choose who to share it with and who not to share it with. You know, that's part of uh, their sales yeah, right. pitch, despite um, the reality of that of that system. Um once implemented and you know i mean it's just um you know that whole thing's really crazy but they they they, they do tend to sell it as you know helping privacy they they say it's it's private and they also say it's persistent which i think is an interesting yeah, term right. uh, uh the subtext to uh persistence um on on their website says it follows you from birth to death um so that's fun um man yeah. what a crazy world <laughs> Um, we are living in, um, to say the very least, but, um, I, I don't know, um, how much, uh, you, uh, detail you, uh, like to discuss the, that particular system. And, but I do think it's something that definitely deserves, uh, our, uh, attention because in a lot of places, I specifically outside of the U S um, I live in Chile, for example, there's a vaccine passport system here. There's complete ignorance about what that agenda, um, actually is and how, um, you know, it's going it, to, the plan is to have it be much more um, than a vaccine passport system. Uh, but not that long ago, I think it was just last month, um, this, uh, I believe the leader of the state of Edo, Edo uh, in Nigeria sort of, sort of spilled the beans, yeah. I guess you could say, um, when he said, you know, you don't get, um, you know, your, your vaccine, your, your vaccination, your vaccine pass, then you won't be able to access uh, banking services. And then on October 7th, about, yeah. um, uh, you know, a week or so ago, uh, the Nigerian central bank says we will be launching a digital currency within days. Um, seems pretty, uh, interesting. And as we sort of alluded to earlier, um, a lot of central banks are, um, just in the past month, have been laying out essentially, you know, white papers, operating manuals, uh, relatively detailed plans uh, for how these CBDCs 
um, will take shape. This, of course, includes the Federal Reserve, includes the Bank of England, um, among uh, others. So I was wondering um, if there were any particular developments um, in recent weeks and months in, in this space that uh, caught your attention uh, more than than others. Um, not really. I, I, let me back up to something you said, though, about ID 2020. Um, something I should have said earlier. When when these banks issue money, uh, let's just take the Fed, uh, issues, you know, billion dollars in currency, billion dollars in, you know, $100 bills. That's That's a liability for the Fed, just like a bank, you know, issuing a bank account. That's a liability. What's the corresponding asset? Well, traditionally, the, the corresponding asset when the Fed creates uh, new reserves or new new cash is a bond. It's an IOU from the government, the federal government, to the Fed. Um, and that's an important thing because in, in a debt-based monetary system, whenever you're talking about money, you're talking about a liability to the issuer. And the Fed has said, and the other central banks have said, yeah, well, we're going to issue a CBDC. It's going to be the third liability in our ba- balance sheet. The question no one is asking is, well, what's the what's the corresponding asset? Is it going to be a bond like everything else? Or is the corresponding asset going to be the person? And there you go with your tie-in to the ID 2020. That's what I think the corresponding asset is going to end up being. Yeah, they'll issue the money. You'll get your money. But you're going to, you're going to have to sign an IOU. This is going to be done on the individual level. And it'll be, probably be done biometrically. That's my guess is about where things are headed. But rest assured, there, there's going to be an asset corresponding to that central bank digital currency liability. No doubt about that at all. Um, the other thing is with CBDC to me that makes it really dangerous and to keep your eye on another question that I don't I don't see asked um, that that often hardly ever is well if every if every country has a CBDC. How, you know, and I want to pay somebody, I'm in the U.S., I want to pay you in Chile. What's the currency down there? Chilean pesos. All right. So I'm going to, you know, I got dollars. I want to pay you in pesos. And you've got to, you're, you're, you know, Chile has a central bank digital currency. So does the U.S. And like the bank example, I said, you know, your, your bank isn't going to take my bank's liabilities on as their own without settlement. My question is, how are all these transactions going to be settled? across border. And I think the answer is ultimately going to be they're going to need a settlement currency, an international settlement currency to settle these transactions in CBDC. And so once that happens, once you get an international settlement currency, whether it gets issued by the IMF, which is where my money would be on who would issue it, or the BIS or whoever, World Bank, that settlement currency is going to trump all of their currencies. Um, and remember, commercial banks can be bankrupted, but the Fed can't be bankrupted. The Fed is top dog in our system, right? Because the Fed, you know, I said, if commercial banks, you can take your money out, your $1,000, and you can demand cash. And that that could really, that could push the bank to the edge. You know, if they didn't have the money, you could institute insolvency proceedings and have the bank wound down. But the Fed is top dog. You can't do that with the Fed because everything the Fed issues, their liabilities, they're just going to be redeemed in other liabilities. In other words, if you take, if you go to the Fed and you say, hey, I've got a $100 bill here, that's your liability. Here's here's your $100 bill. Give me something in exchange 
for that liability, you're going to get 520s back. You're not going to get anything back that the Fed itself doesn't issue as an IOU. That's why the Fed is top dog over the commercial banks. Now translate that to the international level once everybody's got CBDCs. They all look equal. The U.S. has got a CBDC. China's got CBDC. England's got one. Everybody's got a CBDC. But then when we settle, who's going to settle those things? And the answer is whoever is settling those transactions between equal CBDCs that have parity with each other legally, that issuer is now top dog. And that's how I think you're going to lose sovereignty of the country. And that may not sound like a big deal. You know, people, particularly people um, who lean toward the left politically, but they have sovereignty, you know, sovereignty, sovereignty. It's a big deal. It means you don't have a vote anymore. You don't have control over your officials, not even nominal control. You can't even hold their feet to their to the fire anymore once that happens. So it's a very dangerous control system. It's dangerous in terms of the, the biometrics involved. It's dangerous in, in terms of the control they're going to have. They're going to reconfigure, retool the whole conception of money. And it's dangerous in terms of the control you, you would have. You'll no longer have any control over the people who are in charge, literally in charge of your lifeblood. It's a very dangerous system. So some of what you you just discussed and and who will be top dog in that scenario appears to have been uh, uh, potentially answered relatively recently. So on September 30th, um, you know, the end of last month, uh, actually, it was Visa uh, came out with a a plan uh, to create a system that would allow per them automatic conversion between different CBDCs as well as stable coins. Uh, their big plan for interoperability um, among uh, CBDCs around the world, uh, giving numerous examples of automatically converting uh, a Swedish uh, CBDC to British, to U.S., um, and and so on. Uh, They call it a universal adapter linking businesses, customers, central banks, and blockchain systems. So it seems like Visa, and we can assume uh, MasterCard will get in the game as well if they haven't already, kind of want to fill that that niche um, that you identified. And what's interesting is that both of those uh, entities are intimately involved in these, uh, I guess, uh, new economy uh, creation groups, um, I guess is what I'd call them, like the Council for Inclusive Capitalism, um, different entities that are pushing for the uh, global implementation of stakeholder capitalism. They also participate in uh, the Bloomberg New Economy Forum <laughs> that, you know, should tell yeah. you um, what it's about uh, more often than not. And they um, appear to be positioning themselves uh, to be, um, as you said, top dog. Well, let me let me let me talk about that a little bit. There's a lot there to unpack. Um, what Visa is talking about isn't settlement. It's convertibility. Oh, OK. <laughs> and that that would be. To, 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 they're automatically converting, you know, Chilean pesos to U.S. dollars. Okay, and that could be done they, as long as they have some reservoir of funds. They can do that, or they can tap into a bank. They can do that. That's a different thing. That's a different animal than settlement. Settlement is at the end of the day, who owes who what? Okay, let me tell you where Visa falls in the commercial banking system. Just just so you know, it, it's really Visa. If you if you have a visa, a, a master uh, a visa credit card, and you go buy, you know, a hundred dollar um, gizmo, and you swipe your card, you're actually creating 
there's a bank that creates that $100 out of thin air. You've, you've just added $100, $100 to the money supply. But Visa is not a bank. Visa is the face. Visa is the kiosk. It's the, it's, the, it's the PR firm that faces the world. Um, the bank behind Visa is called Comerica. Comerica is the commercial bank behind Visa. So when you swipe that $100 card, Comerica is the one who has created $100 uh, liability in the form of a credit, which goes to the merchant. They've got a $100 asset in the form of the credit card statement that you just signed when you created, when you did the transaction. And that's how that system works. Visa is just the front, it's just the face. They might take a few points off the top. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's that's their business model. But Visa is the face. The bank is Comerica, okay? And Comerica is the one that's got to worry about settlement at the end of the day. Settlement meaning, hey, we've got all these liabilities out there. Uh, we've taken on liabilities from other other banks, and we now have to settle that. That's a, So convertibility and settlement are two different things. But Visa is an integral part of it. Um, remember, I talked about the companies, the companies that own shares, companies that have cash, the policy companies. You, you just a done a big component of that system is the PR, and Visa is a company that I would lump into the PR uh, face of the, it's it's the happy face that they're going to try to put on uh, the CBDC iron fist in the glove system. Um, but the settlement is a is a different thing. The settlement is how you know, when 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 Chile had we've taken the U.S. has taken on, you know, 100 billion dollars worth of pesos, and Chile itself has taken on 110 billion dollars worth of, you know, U.S. dollars. You know, the U.S. owes Chile 10 billion dollars, but Chile doesn't want 10 billion dollars. It wants something of value, because 10 billion dollars at that level is a is a liability. And Chile is going to be looking for an asset. And it's the asset, that's what I'm saying, is that that settlement asset is probably going to come from some international entity. That's my read on it. But Visa, so while you're right, the Visa has a very important role in it. It's it's not it's it's not the role that of settlement. Okay. Right. Okay. Does that make yeah, sense? Totally. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for setting me straight. So um I recently wrote about um, an effort that I think may interest you. Um, it came out today, the, the day we're recording. So, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, it, it, it's pretty new, but it's about this um, effort that was launched um, last month. Hasn't really been talked about a lot. They're called Natural Asset Corporations. It's a way to essentially uh, financialize um natural assets and previous that have previously never been monetized um things like natural processes like uh carbon sequestration pollination uh things like biodiversity um uh you know the the process by which soil uh causes plants to grow um all of this is now um being created so it can be up for grabs and um <clears throat> According to the um, Intrinsic Exchange Group, which is really the group behind this, uh, they're largely um, a, a, a partnership of the Inter-American Development Bank and the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, they have a graphic where they explain this whole system that they have now um, uh, partnered with the New York Stock Exchange to implement. Um, and they call this nature's economy. <laughs> right. And so they have this graphic. They call it. That sounds the, great. Yeah. Right there. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> Sign me up. 
Yeah, they call it the opportunity, the opportunity they see in all of this, right? And I think it's the most telling part of their whole um, uh, spiel they have on their website where they say, you know, the traditional economy, what you're dealing with about 500, their estimate, $512 trillion uh, in assets. Um, but with nature's economy, that goes to $4,000 trillion or $4 quadrillion. <laughs> dollars in assets um so now you know the the you know it just seems to be uh so completely insane because they're essentially uh making commodities and doing ipo uh, you know doing ipos and, and and all of this stuff making companies that go public that are based on something that was traditionally part of the commons that no one owns and this is all being done under the guise of green finance um, solutions to climate change that, of course, the same people pushing CBDCs are saying, um, are going to be the, the resolution to all, um, of our, uh, all of the, uh, perceived real, uh, uh, and, and also real environmental crises, uh, facing us. Uh, and so this seems to be, uh, even a bigger departure from things like ESG investing, um, which has been getting a lot of buzz lately as well, thanks to people like uh, Prince Harry getting involved in uh, <laughs> becoming the top ESG influencer or, or whatever. <laughs> uh, so I think it's um, it might be uh, worth maybe uh, you know to to wrap up here talking a little bit about how um, some of these um, green finance tools sort of tie in, uh, quote unquote tools tie into what we talked about. Um, a little earlier, um, because something you said earlier about BlackRock, um, uh, made me think about ESGs, but I wanted to wait to bring it up. So how you talked about, um, how BlackRock has, um, significant stakes in tons of companies that can basically force those companies to, to do, uh, whatever they want. And so, you know, you have the head of BlackRock, Larry Fink. Right. Being on the board of the World Economic Forum, being very involved with these these various types of agendas. Um, and so in theory, you know, and under the guise of ESG investing, he could force um, any number of these corporations in which BlackRock has a significant stake uh, to adopt certain policies that are sort of under this ESG um, umbrella <laughs> uh, yeah. that aren't necessarily profitable. Uh, but advance, uh, you know, this whole, uh, technocratic push, uh, that, that Fink and, and through Fink BlackRock are, are a part of. Yeah. Um, there's, um, you know, when you, when you were talking about that, it reminded me of, did you ever read Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins? I haven't read it, but I'm familiar, uh, with the, okay. uh, so, the, the, the book more or less. <laughs> so here's, here's, here's the, here's the, here's the, the play. Here's the move that the hitman, the international financiers would make in countries. They go to a country. Okay? They go to a, a poor – the country that's monetarily doesn't have a lot going on, not, not rich financially, but it's very rich in terms of resources. And the way the financiers would take over that country is they would go to the leaders in the country and they'd say, hey, you know what? You got a lot of resources here. You could have a, a – you could be really rich and your people could be really rich. Let us come up with a business plan for you. That we'll talk about the rosy future and how much money you'll make under once you have all these theme parks and you harvest all this energy. And we'll pitch this plan to the financiers and then you can get tons of loans. 
and the local business, you know, local leaders like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, they're bribed, they're on board. Now they come up with these business plans. They pitch them to the banks who, of course, are in cahoots with the hitmen. And they, the banks lend them all this money, knowing that these business plans are a complete crock. Um, they're they're completely panglossian. They're overly optimistic. They're never going to be able to pay this money back. And in the loan agreement, like every loan agreement, is that in the event of default, the jackals, the financiers, get to repossess. They get to take the assets, which has been pledged as collateral. So when you talk about five hundred trillion dollars is what the globe is worth now, that's actually that number is not that far off, I don't think. But the four quadrillion, that's pie in the sky economic hitman. That's what that is. And so what's being set up is a system for the financiers to being able to take over physical assets. That's the name of that game. Just like they're going to you know, take over control of people in this system with biometrics and control of your identity and control of your money, they're also interested in taking over an assets and ESG and all those happy face things about climate change. That's how they're going to do it. There's another part to it, though which is that getting companies signed up to play the carbon credit game, you know, that's just a shell game these guys are going to play where they get to make up the rules as they go as to how many credits you get or don't grant, how much money you owe at the end of the day. That's It's all a sham. It's all a shuck and jive to steal assets and take assets and to prop up the companies that play ball and to shut down the companies that don't. It's, it's just basically what's going on during the pandemic with the lockdowns where little businesses get shut down but it's totally safe to go shopping all day on Walmart without a mask on. That's going to go on steroids under this plan you're talking about with this ESG. This is just insanity. Yeah. So as far as making it up as they go, man, is that true? So basically a lot of this stuff with like the natural asset companies um, that I wrote about recently, a lot of this is based on protocols that have been developed to measure and quantify the value of different natural processes or natural resources. Yeah, um, who's going to who decides that? <laughs> well, so far it appears to be a group that are called the Capitals Coalition. Uh, they <laughs> they have a natural capital protocol and also a human and social capital protocol. Um, and it, it's quite funny. Uh, cause I was curious, well, like, okay, well, how do they explain, um, you know, the measurement of this? And I went to their, their training stuff, their training guides or whatever. And they have a video of their CEO talking about it. And you can tell he doesn't even know what the heck he's talking about. I mean, no, he's, they're making it up. he's just lost and he's just trying to make it look, <laughs> look like he knows what he's doing. I mean, it's quite, it's quite sad, but they're honestly, you know, if you, if you read these people's documents, I mean, they're going with it, but it's just, it's completely speculative. They decide what it values and they're going to charge people, uh, to use the, the benefits of these processes that they're going to assign ownership to. You know, we could essentially see if, if this advances, um, essentially, you know, uh, to go back to BlackRock, having someone like, uh, Larry Fink charge you for the air you're breathing because it's produced through a process by which carbon dioxide is converted to oxygen in, in a tree leaf in a particular um, forest managed by a natural asset company. So now you have to yeah. um, pay to breathe, you know, back to the sort of like uh, medieval era air tax <laughs> stuff in uh, what is now the United Kingdom and all of that stuff. Um, <laughs> a way to sort of institutionalize that and claim that it's greening um the economy. It's, it's pretty impressive. 
And another thing with energy is it's it's an easier thing to control because you can track it, right? It's sort of like a value-added tax. You got it sort of tracking a good through its paces as it goes to the economy. You know, that's an essential part of value-added tax. Energy is in a lot of ways the same way. You can sort of, that's what they're talking about here is, you know, transferring credits from one to another in the process. It's largely the same thing. Um, and that's what they're, I think they're after. It's just, it's just total control. But I'll tell you who's who's running that system and coming up with those rules. Whoever it is, it ain't you, and it ain't who people you're voting for. You have no say in the rules they come up with to run this system and to right. decide outcomes in this system. Just, just like you don't have any say, and I don't have any say in the so-called rules about masking or injections or, you know, do you got to socially distance here but not there? They're completely arbitrary and capricious, and they're just made up on the fly by the powers that be. And this is no different. It's the same thing. Yeah, uh, I think it's it's really impressive, uh, but not in the way I guess most people would. But I'm not like a positive impressive. Like I'm I'm aghast at the whole system. No, it's audacious. Yeah, right. uh, but it's uh, it's it's over. It's definitely over the top. Uh, it's uh, I didn't. You know, I saw I saw that this had been launched, and I just couldn't really. I had a hard time even believing that they that they would go um, this far, but they have, they have. And if they have already gone this far, why won't they go even farther than this? Um, yeah, you know, the shamelessness has no end. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But I think it's really uh, interesting that uh, central bankers, in particular, are so intimately involved in a lot of um, these efforts, particularly "quote unquote" climate change solutions. Um, you have, for example, the point man for the UN uh, Climate Action and Finance, right? Is uh, is Mark Carney? Um, oh God forbid! <laughs> oh, you didn't know that? Yeah. So he's. He's the uh, UN point man for climate action and finance right now. And of course, uh, for those that don't know, Mark Carney, uh, John obviously does. <laughs> uh, he's the former uh, head of the Bank of England and also the Bank of Canada, a central banker, central banker. So um, he's also from Goldman Sachs. And most importantly, he was head of the Financial Stability Board in Basel, Switzerland, which is all bad. That The, the Financial Stability Board is a group that would meet in Basel, Switzerland and decide policy. And they would invite um, people who were included in membership of the FSB would be heads of like the exchequer in England and the treasury in the U.S. and the Fed and all these official people in their official capacities. And they would meet in secret and decide on stuff. And they were allowed, you know, Carney or whoever the head of the FSB was. It was it was Mario Draghi before Mark Carney. They could invite in their buddies to set policy. So, but people from private industry could come in and basically give orders to financial ministers around the world, and they have to carry out those orders. What a great system! But there's no record of it because they meet in secret, and they're beyond the subpoena power of any court. How lovely! Mark Carney, bad dude. Yep. That's probably why he was put in charge of um, creating the new era of grift under the guise of uh, saving the planet, which is, you know, how they're, how they're pitching a lot of this, but it's really, um, quite astounding. So like, in addition to having, you know, a figure like him being so critical and in planning all of this out, um, you have someone also like a Henry Paulson, uh, secretary of the treasury under Bush, 
Um, he, until relatively recently, was head of the Nature Conservancy. Um, one, he's one of the main people behind the Bloomberg New Economy Forum. That's Michael Bloomberg, uh, Henry Paulson, and Henry Kissinger. Um, that's the leadership of of that, and they're specifically focused on uh, climate stuff, creating the the net zero economy, um, and yeah. all of this stuff. And you know, um, I I just find it really astounding that we have. Um, I guess, uh, strong youth movements, um, people in particular, uh, segments on, on the left that are essentially cheering for these guys to, um, remake the economy, um, you know, under the guise that they're the, I know, right, that they're the ones that are going to be combating, uh, climate change. But I think that's because they, um, you know, people like Greta, uh, Thunberg are essentially the faces for agendas and, and yeah. policy that are being set by people like Mark Carney, um, Henry Paulson, and some of these other figures. Uh, Henry Paulson, by the way, when he wasn't Secretary of the Treasury, also Goldman Sachs. So, you know, you have a lot of these um, inter <laughs> interrelated guys um, doing that. Oh, by the way, the most important thing I probably should have mentioned about Paulson is that he threatened members of Congress with them. Um, declaring martial law in the United States if they didn't bail out the banks in 2008. And if you look at the New Economy yeah. uh, Forum, the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, um, <clears throat> their leadership, you'll find a lot of people involved with different aspects of the 2008 financial crash in different countries around the world. Paul I mean, said, it's- Paulson's an idiot. I'm just going to tell you that. He's, a, he's an idiot. I, I knew a, I knew a, a, a... Well, he's a successful idiot, I guess you could say. Yeah, he is. He's a successful <laughs> He's he's a chess beater who's got a staff under him, but that's what he is. He's he's just a big he's a big blustery guy. I knew a limo driver in Chicago, I drove him around quite a few times. And I said, What's he like? He said, It's weird. He says the guy freaks out all the time about what people think about him. He said, you know, he's he's in the he's in the limo and he's he's on the phone with his wife and they're going to some function at the art museum, the art institute. And he said the whole thing, it's like, Do you think they'll like us? Do do, do they like us? Do the people like us? You know. He said it was always like that with him. The guy was obsessed with what the public thought of him. Wow. Well, yeah. uh, I don't even know what to say to that. I almost, I, yeah. I want to feel bad for him, but then I remember who Henry Paulson is and then I don't. Right. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that, that makes it a little whereas, complicated. Whereas, you know, a guy like Geithner, Tim Geithner, right. you know, New York Fed guys, they're smart. Paulson, mm, I don't know. But then again, the central bankers do it. They do a great job, as you've been laying out so well, of putting on a smiley face to all these programs. They take over. And a lot of people, the big segment of the population depresses me every day, really respond to the confidence that comes from somebody like Hank Paulson. Even though if you ask him a couple of questions, obviously he's, in, he's, a, mor- he's a moron. Yeah. 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 Um, but, you know, I think this is this whole trend, uh, you know, I mean, why would uh, they say in the past week that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are the new faces of ESG investing? You know, they're trying to sell this through influencers and people that can inspire confidence throughout the public um, in oh, things yeah. that are <laughs> they normally would not want um, or accept and, and to, you know, have uh, I, because essentially, you know, um this was actually announced. I've said this a couple times uh, on, on I think on this podcast and some other interviews I've done. 
um, that in January of this year, you know, you have Klaus Schwab during Davos Agenda Week before the actual uh, virtual Davos um, uh, this year, essentially saying that by the end of 2021, uh, the the fear will have moved away from COVID-19 and into climate change. That appears to be um, on schedule. And we're already seeing the solutions that the public are going to be fed uh, for climate change um, in the same way consent was manufactured for certain, quote unquote, solutions to COVID-19. You know, that's currently taking place. And, and so much of it is is around investing, carbon markets. I'm sure these um, natural asset companies will make an appearance now that they um, exist. And you have all of these um, uh, conventions, like uh, there's currently COP15 right now. There's going to be COP26, I guess, uh, in November, and also the Bloomberg New Economy Forum's annual meeting uh, focused on climate um, and all of all of this stuff towards the end of the year. But so much of it is is, you know, if you boil it down to it, it's it's about creating new markets, creating new assets and all of this stuff. And this is really supposed to be what convinces people that, you know, this is going to save the planet. I mean, I I want to say <laughs> that that should be a hard sell, but the bar is so low, I honestly just don't know anymore. Um, yeah, it's, and- it's no job. But after seeing what we've seen with COVID-19, all bets are off. I know. It might, it might work. People I know. That That's dumb. so depressing. Because um, you would think, I, I don't know, you would think people would, would wise up and be like, wait, you know, I mean, I mean, just like in the case of agriculture, you know, um, is, is turning farmland into a natural asset company better than returning to um, permaculture and sustainable Small-scale yeah. farming turn practices over, and family farms. Turn over the farms. public asset to private hands. Turn over the public asset to private I mean, it's, I feel like I'm watching Charlie Brown. Like, did you have to watch Charlie Brown 5,000 times in a row to figure out that he wasn't going to kick the football? No, you didn't. <laughs> you know, two or three times is probably enough when you were five years old. But yeah. yet this, you fall for it. You get blowtorched every time you fall for it. It's unbelievable. It's very depressing. Yeah. Well, I really don't want to end the podcast on a depressing note. Um, <laughs> so I just really hope that um, this is so farcical that it's a bridge too far, um, even for what people managed to pull off. Um, these people managed to yeah. pull off over the past year and a half um, that the move to climate change, you know, people will have a lot more head scratching um, about that and, and the solutions they proposed than they, than they did about what um, transpired over the past year and a half. I don't know, though. <laughs> um, but well, I, I think in a lot of ways, though, the official narrative is jumping the shark and it's getting so patently ridiculous that more and more people are waking up. Yes, I do. I do tend to see that. But then again, I uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I uh, after a, a stint in, in the United Kingdom earlier this year, I am back in, in Chile and people here just, oh, man, they buy everything hook, line and sinker, it seems like. Um, uh, so, but hopefully, you know, it seems like in the U.S. and the U.K. to a, uh, to an extent as well that, that tide, the tide does seem to be turning. And I think a lot of that is because, um, of work people have been doing to challenge the narrative, um, in, in independent media specifically. Uh, of course, not everyone in independent media has been doing that the past year and a half. Um, but right. some people have. And I think, uh, I found, uh, your work, um, over this particular period, particularly, uh, illuminating. So I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on and uh, 
uh, educate me as well as my audience about um, a lot of the the finer details of this financial stuff because I think it's really important. You know, following the money is always really the most important step with a lot of um, this stuff and trying to elucidate the real agendas and real real things that are going on here. And sometimes, you know, for people that don't have the kind of background you have, um, you know, it can be um, it, it can sometimes uh, get be. Uh, we can sometimes easily be lost, I guess you could say, in some of the the, the technical terms. But I think you did a really great job of, of breaking that down um, for people without that particular um, expertise. So thanks a lot. And um, before we conclude here, um, is there a way uh, for people to follow your work um, and and support it? Uh, yeah, I'm on I'm on YouTube um, and I'm on Odyssey and and one other bit bit shoot maybe. Yeah. And uh, that's it. My channel on all three is called Best Evidence, one word, and and I'm there. But um, and that's that. I don't I don't monetize any of my videos because I don't want to give people an excuse to click out by running ads. All right. Well, I would definitely uh, recommend checking out John's YouTube channel as well as his uh, work with Catherine Austin Fitz on uh, the Solari Report. Um, highly recommend all of that. Uh, Thank you so much to everyone who's listening, especially people who choose to support this podcast. Uh, Greatly appreciated as always. And we will catch you during the next episode. Thanks so much. Bye.